Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17 as we continue in our series of living faith, praising God for the Christ-centered, Christ-exalting preaching of Tyler and Micah over these last few weeks. Amen. It has been a glorious experience to sit up under the Word of God, and as we continue this morning in our series, Living Faith, let me begin by asking a question and then making a statement. And both the question and the statement are brought directly from God's Word. Here's the question. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this? If you learn all the right words but never do anything, does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing, a corpse. Let those words sort of go around in our minds as we Look to Luke chapter 17 this morning. If you are able, please stand as we read God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I'll eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he does what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You may be seated. Again, as we, as we talk about this, this series of living faith, we have to understand that living faith sort of manifests itself in community. Living faith is expressed in community. And the bridge that sort of joins verse, uh, chapter 17, verses 1 and 2 to verses 3 and 4 is what we find in verse 3. Notice what Christ says. Pay attention to yourselves. 
This is the bridge that joins the entirety of this first part of chapter 17. Christ says, pay attention to yourselves. And Christ uses the plural intentionally here. For all of my Southern folks in the room, Christ says, pay attention to y'all. To put it negatively, Christ says, don't keep worrying about yourself only. Pay attention to someone else within the community of God's people. Listen, folks, church isn't a thing that we do on Sunday. Church is a community in which we live within. And Christ shows that as he expresses himself in verse 3. He says, it's not about you. Within the body of God's people, we should sort of have the freedom to not worry about ourselves so much because someone else in the community is worrying about us. We should have the, the freedom to sort of smash the mirror of perpetually looking at ourselves and bring in the window in which we can look into someone else's heart, look into someone else's life and pay attention to them. So Christ says, pay attention to y'all. Now I must warn you, I must warn you saints that as we do that, as we seek to apply verse three, as we seek to look into other people's lives and be involved in this community, I have to warn you that as we do that, we're going to notice that the community of God's people is a broken, clumsy gathering of broken people. Once you start peering in, once you start living intimately, once you start being involved in community, you're gonna see that, man, the church is filled with broken people. So Christ says in verse one, as he calls his disciples together, he is talking to a different audience than what he was talking to last week when Pastor Micah was sharing. This week, he is having a family conversation. And as he calls his family together, as he calls his disciples together, Christ says in not so many words that, man, disciples, your family here on earth is a hot mess. Keep in mind, he's talking about family here. Notice what he says. He calls his disciples for it. He says, temptations are sure to come in verse 1. You understand that the Bible was written in a different language. The New Testament was written in Greek. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it, it is helpful to sort of go back to the original language and understand what the word is saying so that it can help us better understand as we read our text today. That word temptation there in verse 1. It comes from the Greek word scandalon. Does that word sound familiar? We get our English word scandalous from that word. Christ said these 
scandalous things are sure to come. Christ gives a promise that as you interact with people, there are scandalous things that are sure to happen. And what makes them scandalous is because there's sort of an intentionality behind it. People are intentionally causing us to sin. The word picture is of someone who is sitting down and as someone walks past, you sort of stick your foot out to trip them. It's an intentionality. The picture is of a stumbling block that is intentionally set in front of a person. That you are intentionally causing someone else to sin. Christ says these things are sure to happen. Brothers and sisters, this is a promise of Jesus. You talk about claiming the promises of God. When was the last time you woke up in the morning and said, you know what? I'm going to claim the promise of God that someone is going to cause me to sin today. It's a promise. These things are sure to happen. But saints, the, the thrust, the implication of this text as Christ goes on is to say, you make sure you're not that person. Oh, they're sure to come. But let it not be you. Christ says, woe to the one through whom these temptations would come. Woe to the one who would cause one of Christ's followers to sin. Christ says, it's better. It's better than causing one of my people to sin. It's better if you just drown yourself. That's a tough word. I mean... If something is sort of placed against this drowning, if drowning is better than something else, that something else must be pretty horrible. I mean, Christ says that something else is intentionally causing one of my people to sin. And I love what, what Christ calls his people. He calls them his little ones. It's better that you would just drown yourself in the cause one of my little ones. I love that because what that word sort of brings to mind is first it sort of brings to mind that there are no spiritual giants in the kingdom of God. There are no people in the kingdom of God who have more access to the spirit and to the full armor of God than what you do. The man standing on this platform has no spiritual power more so than you do, and that is we have the spiritual power of claiming the power of the Spirit in our daily lives and putting on the full armor of God. There are no spiritual giants in the kingdom. We're, we're all these little ones who are daily in need of the protecting power of Jesus Christ. And that's the second thing it sort of brings to mind. Little ones sort of causes me in my mind to think about a child that is being protected by a larger human being. And who gets any larger than Jesus Christ? Christ says, 
If you intentionally cause one of my people to sin, your problem is no longer between you and that person. You have now sort of waged war against the king of kings. If you cause one of Christ's people to sin intentionally, your problem is not with that person. You have stepped up against the person who has never lost a battle. It's better, Christ says, if you would just tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the heart of the sea than to intentionally place a stumbling block to intentionally cause one of God's people to sin. Why? Because we are his little ones. Temptation to sin is sure to come. That's part one of living in community. Part two of living in community is they're sure to come. Temptations will come. And when they do, When somebody does that to you, when somebody sins against you, you must forgive them. Oh, that's a great community, right? What kind of community am I involved myself in? You're part of a community that somebody is going to cause you to sin. And when they do, you must forgive them. Look at verses 3 and 4 of our text. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Notice in the text that Christ gives two commands here. He gives the command of rebuking, and he gives the command of forgiving. This is sort of the rhythm of living in God's community. Both of these things are required if we are to dwell in God's community. It is a rebuking and it is a forgiving. Every person who walks through that door, I don't know everybody in this room, but we are sort of perpetually in a state of either needing to be rebuked, needing to rebuke, or needing to forgive, or needing forgiveness. We're sort of all in this rhythm of both of these things being required. And I love that Christ sort of joins these two things together. Both. Both of these things are required. The first command, the rebuke sort of says, hey, you don't just say to a person, it's all good. No worries. You sinned against me. Not a problem. That's not what Christ says. He says rebuke. And the second command to forgive sort of jettisons the idea that we can ever say to a believer, I can never forgive you. Both of those things are equally wrong in the kingdom of God. We are perpetually rebuking and forgiving, rebuking and forgiving. See, the the problem with us saints is that some of us, are better at rebuking than what we are at forgiving. Some of us are always sort of pointing out, pointing out, pointing out. And some of us are better at forgiving than rebuking. Some of us are always sort of in this position like, no, it doesn't matter. You sinned against me a thousand times. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. 
But Christ says both of these things are necessary to dwell in the community of God's people. Why? Why is this the rhythm of being in God's household? Because we are broken people. And every time we gather, brothers and sisters, it is a miracle that broken people can sit next to broken people and somehow it all fits together. It is a miracle every time we gather on Sunday that broken people walk through those doors and sit next to broken people and we sing the same song and we join in in unison that Jesus Christ is our King. It is amazing that you and I can worship together. You ever broken a glass and attempted to sort of put that glass back together again? What inevitably sort of happens as you sort of try to glue that glass back together again, you're always missing a piece. There's always some sort of small shard of glass that is underneath the counter or under the rug and the piece never quite fits together the same way again. That's why, folks, it's a miracle that brokenness can worship with brokenness. And somehow, through the miraculous, gluing power of Jesus Christ, you and I can praise him together. It is a miracle when we gather to worship. It is a miracle when we gather in small groups. Listen, folks, there are folks in this community who have sworn off church who before they entered those doors said, I'm never going to church again. I've been hurt too badly by church. And some of those folks have made a vow together with us to be in community together. That's a miracle. There are ladies in our fellowship who have been abused by men their entire life and by faith have covenanted together to submit themselves under the leadership and elders of this church. That is a miracle. Folks, there are, dare I say, there are Democrats and Republicans worshiping together in this very room. Oh my, the scandal of it all. And you even have in the mix sort of those indecisive independents all worshiping together. And, oh, that's a scandal. Wow, saints, it's a miracle that we can join hands together, be united under the banner of Jesus Christ, all collectively bring our broken pieces together in this room. And Christ is the greatest. He is the best at painting this great and glorious mosaic of broken people together. And he calls them his church. That is awesome. Rebuke forgive. Rebuke, repent, forgive. Rinse, repeat. Rebuke, repent, forgive. Rinse, repeat. This is the rhythm of being in the community of God's people. Listen, we shouldn't let the world dictate how we interact with one another. 
We shouldn't let the world's standards sort of come to bear on how we interact with God's people. The world says they do you wrong one time and it's all over, cut off the relationship. Twice? Three times they sin against you? You're crazy to be in that relationship with those broken people. But the world is wanting. The church has the spirit of God in our very midst. So the world is right. It is right to sort of characterize the church as a building full of hypocrites. We are. The world is right to characterize the church as a building full of sinners. We are. They're right to say that's a building full of broken people. We, we are. But we fight and we war together to rebuke, to repent, and to forgive to the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. Christ goes on. He's not done yet. He goes on to say, even, even if someone sins against you seven times in the same day, and turns and repents seven times, you must forgive them. I don't know if you write in your Bibles, but if you do underline, put a box around, bold, italicize. I don't know if you can do that in your Bibles. If you have a sort of digital Bible, you can italicize. The word must. Seven times in the same day, and they turn and repent, and I must forgive them. What verse does, what verse 4 does, it sort of crushes some of the things that we often say when it comes to forgiveness. Some of the things we often say that sounds good on the surface, but when it's compared to the standard of the Word of God, it's sort of found lacking in a lot of different ways. What are some of those things we say? Some of the things we say is, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. What does that say? It sort of says that we're keeping a record. Hey, you did me wrong the first time, but I'm watching for the next time. And if you get me again, I promise it's my fault because I wasn't looking out and watching for the next time that you sin against me. But that sort of negates what Paul writes, and he says that love... It keeps no record of wrongs. Another thing we say in a community of God's house, if I, if I keep letting them sin against me, I'm just condoning their behavior. Maybe, maybe, brothers and sisters, maybe it's not condoning. Maybe we're sort of putting in the practice what Paul writes and he says, we're, we're, we're simply believing all things and bearing all things, and hoping all things, and enduring all things. Maybe that's what we're doing. We continually live in a community of broken people who sin against us. Maybe we're just broken people being broken people. And listen, folks, I'm not on this platform sort of proclaiming to you a truth that I have perfected. I'm on this platform proclaiming to you a truth that I sometimes have to crawl and limp to the foot of Calvary daily because I get it wrong all the time. 
When we preach and teach, we always preach and teach better than ourselves because we preach and teach Jesus Christ. And he is better. So don't you hear Stephen Love, oh, he's great at forgiving. I'm not. I'm simply just preaching to myself right now. Another thing we say, I love this one. You didn't really repent if you did it again. What that saying sort of underestimates, it underestimates our brokenness. It underestimates sort of the the power of sin that's in our lives until glory. It underestimates, hey, we live and dwell within sin, and sin will be a consistent struggle until we're taken to glory, until we're perfected. But here on this earth, brothers and sisters, 1 John says, if you say you have no sin, you lie and you make God out to be a liar. God, there are folks in this room who have repented, who have genuinely repented, and gone back into that sin. That's what Christ says if they repent and come back to you seven times. Christ doesn't say, hey, if they come back to you the first time, they must have, they didn't really repent. You need to find yourself a different community. And just when we're getting ready, brothers and sisters, just when we're getting ready to say, who in the world is telling us to forgive like this? Just when we're getting ready to say the person who was commanding us to forgive like this, he doesn't know me. At that very moment, we look down at our Bibles and we see that what is written is written in red, (laughs) which means that Jesus Christ is saying these things. Just when we say, huh, whoever commanded us to do this, he doesn't understand my situation. Because here in Luke chapter 17, Jesus Christ is sort of slowly making his way to the cross of Calvary. He is going to that cross to take away all your sins, your hundreds and thousands of sins, your sins that you vowed you would never commit again, and you committed them again. Your sins which have ravished your family, and yet you still commit them. Jesus Christ is getting ready to go to Calvary to take away all those sins. Listen, it's not Stephen Love telling you to forgive seven times in the same day. You may rightly say, Stephen Love doesn't know my situation. Stephen Love doesn't understand what I'm going through. Stephen Love doesn't understand what I have put up with. It's not Stephen Love saying this. It's Jesus Christ. And saints, he knows exactly what you're going through. And he still has the audacity to say, you must forgive. So the disciples hear this, much like we're hearing it today, and they're saying, there's there's no way we can do this. And you're right. In your own strength, there is no way that you can live in a community of broken people and forgive people seven times in the same day if they repent. So the disciples cry out, Lord, increase our faith. If you're you're calling us to forgive a person seven times in the same day, Lord, we, we need more faith. I love that. I love that. The disciples give us the antidote 
for living in a community of broken believers. They give us the antidote. And the antidote for living in a community of broken believers is not isolation and separation. It is faith in Jesus Christ. Notice what the disciples did not say. They didn't say, man, Lord, what? You want me to live in that community? You want me to forgive seven times? Now I'd rather find a different community. They say, Lord, Lord, give us, give us more faith. We need more faith, and I love what Christ says. He says, you don't need more faith. You need the right kind of faith. You need a faith that is rooted in Jesus Christ. I love how Christ doesn't deal with the quantity of their faith. He goes straight to the type of faith that they ought to have. If you have just a little bit of faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to that mulberry tree, whatever type of tree that is, you can say to that mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the heart of the sea. Faith in. Faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, believers, the reason why our faith can uproot is because our faith is rooted in Jesus Christ. The reason why our faith can plant is because our faith is planted in Jesus Christ. The reason why our faith can move to the heart of the sea is because our faith is in someone who has the ability to calm the seas. Your faith is not in your husband, whom you have been praying for to just be the man that you want him to be. Your faith is in Jesus Christ, who has the ability to change his heart. Your faith is not in your wife, who doesn't love and respect you the way you think you ought to be loved and respected. Your faith is in Jesus Christ, who has the ability to reach his hand into her very heart and change it. Your faith is not in your rebellious kids whom you have prayed for time and time again, Lord, please bring them back. Your faith is in Jesus Christ, who brings back prodigals every day. Listen, if our faith is in other people, that changes too much. I need my faith rooted in a person who never changes, and that is in Jesus Christ. So he says, just a little bit of faith will do you. Just the right kind of faith that is rooted in Jesus Christ. You take the little bit of hook of your faith and you hook it into this massive entity called Jesus Christ and your faith can do wonders. Your faith can allow you to forgive. Why? Because it's rooted in Jesus Christ. You don't need more faith. You need the right faith. You need faith that is in Jesus Christ. This living faith sort of moves in and through our community. This living faith is rooted and planted in Jesus Christ. And this living faith is characterized by humility. I love the last few verses of chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Because these last few verses sort of deal with the pride that so easily creeps in when we have forgiven someone. 
Lord, I I just forgave this person. I'm the bigger man. I'm the bigger woman. Look at me. I forgave them. Now Christ reward me for my forgiveness. Christ says, you're only doing what I'm asking you to do. You're only doing what is required of you. How often does that pride come in after we have taken sort of that step of faith and we have forgiven a broken soul and we step back and say, man, I feel pretty good about myself. Look at what I just accomplished. That's the wrong posture to have before Christ. The right posture is, Lord, you you would allow me to forgive? Lord, you would allow me to be like you in my forgiveness, Lord? You would allow me to tear down that wall of bitterness even before it is built up, Lord? You would allow me to be like Jesus Christ in forgiveness? And this is tough. Forgiveness is hard. Which is why the disciples said, Lord, give us more faith. And we're saying, Lord, don't don't give us more faith, Lord. Just just give me faith. Give me faith to trust that what you're saying in Luke chapter 17 is true and it is real. Lord, give me faith to believe that as you have forgiven me, you can give me the grace to forgive others. Lord, I don't need a a lot of faith. I just need a little bit of faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, give me faith as I live and dwell in a community of broken people. Give me faith. Because, Lord, I, I know the only right solution is to simply give you my life. Lord, forgiveness is hard. Give me faith. Give me faith. Give me faith.